Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. How Samadhi Leads to Liberation Samadhi goes through progressive stages of stillness as we engage fully in some primary task. In Buddhism, this is generally a wisdom or ethics practice, but samadhi, but not right samadhi, is a natural phenomenon that exists outside of Buddhism as well. The stages are unhinderedness, one-centeredness, silence, and equanimity. Silence, called noble silence, begins with the second jhana and represents a significantly more effortless, non-discursive, mode of cognition. It's the most important step to be aware of for today's talk. Equanimity is highlighted in the fourth jhana. Last week, we began to discuss the four fruits of samadhi. How will samadhi make a difference in the practitioner's life? I repeat, because there are these four developments of samadhi. What for? There is the development of samadhi that developed and cultivated leads to dwelling happily in this very life. There is a development of samadhi that developed and cultivated leads to obtaining knowledge and vision. There is a development of samadhi that developed and cultivated leads to proficiency comprehension. There is a development of samadhi that developed and cultivated leads to the destruction of the taints. We considered the first point about dwelling happily in this life last week. Let's look at the remaining three. Obtaining knowledge and vision. Samadhi is an insight factory, and proficiency and attentiveness in Dhamma provide its raw materials. Accordingly, we should note that jhana is discussed in the early texts mainly in association with awakening. When right samadhi does not exist for one failing right samadhi, the proximate cause is destroyed for knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Knowledge and vision are factors of wisdom attributed to samadhi repeatedly in the early texts, where they represent a stage close to final liberation, at which it might be said that we see what the Buddha saw. There is no jhana for one with no wisdom, no wisdom for one without jhana. But one with both jhana and wisdom, he's on the verge of nibbana. In sum, we seem to see things in samadhi that we otherwise miss. Why might that be? Recall that it is silent, not discursive cognition that is most directly associated with the highest levels of expertise in task performance. 
discursive cognition, which is active in the first jhana, but not in the second, third, and fourth, is needed when you have to figure out anew how to accomplish something. It reasons through it. But it takes a long time, is often very clumsy, generally highly abstract, and requires a lot of energy. Silent cognition, active throughout, is fast. It can analyze extremely complex patterns with virtually no effort, rather intuitively. Silent cognition is prone to all kinds of biases and shortcuts, but not if it has been trained carefully over a long period of time in a certain area of expertise. Any kind of expertise or virtuosity depends on extensive training, and this training internalized the best of what we figure out by thinking into a form subject to silent cognition. Samadhi makes the energy available for discursive cognition available for silent cognition, rather than dispersing it into other energy-intensive activities and works with the finest, grounded elements of experience. I can think of five reasons why the higher jhanas serve to see the things that we otherwise miss in discursive cognition. First, bringing practice into silence might serve internalization itself of proficiency by pushing the neophyte to abandon more quickly reliance on the costly discursive mode. This is much as a soldier learns to disassemble and reassemble his rifle in five minutes, then to do the same blindfolded. Okay, Private, now let's see it in the third jhana. Second, our worst presumptions, such as of the existence of a substantial self, are immediately unsustainable in the absence of discursive cognition. Our narratives shut down, we stop telling ourselves stories. The voice chattering in our heads tends towards the most problematic forms of overthinking. At least temporarily, we abide in and habituate a reality in which ingrained presumptions are absent. Third, generalizing the last point, a change in mode of cognition entails a shift in what we experience as reality. This is a clear demonstration of the across-the-board mental constructedness of what we take to be real and substantial. It is hard to find anything substantial in the silence of the higher jhanas, though we are certainly aware and can perceive. Fourth, silent cognition clears away abstractions in favor of attunement to factors experienced more directly in sensory-motor experience, grounded in the body. It supports crystal clarity unobscured by shrill, higher-order conceptualizations and narratives. Consider the way virtuoso musicians develop very refined musical sensitivities in the midst of effortless performance.
Fifth, silence encourages those aha moments when we finally get it in a deeper way. Such insight typically begins with thought and deliberation about a challenging problem that then reaches an impasse. This is followed by an incubation period during which there is little or no discernible process of analysis concerning the problem, but out of which the solution suddenly erupts spontaneously. Silent cognition provides the incubation period along with maintaining the theme, the namitta of samadhi, in a quiescent but activated state, so that cognition can remain silently engaged with the problem at hand below the radar until that aha moment. In short, silent cognition has a lot going for it. It's where we rely more on intuition, hunches, and the seat of our pants. And these are very powerful especially for experts who, through training, have internalized their skills and for Buddhist practitioners who have substantially internalized Buddhist practices. Proficiency and Comprehension Proficiency comprehension is the core function of right proficiency. The isolated insights it produces concerning knowledge and vision are matters of discovery. The Chunki Sutta tells us about discovery. When, when he, he examines, examines their, their meaning, meaning, he gains a reflective acceptance of those teachings. Zeal springs up. He applies his will. Having applied his will, he scrutinizes. He strives. He realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. In this way, there is the discovery of truth, but as yet there is no final arrival at truth. This encompasses Dhamma study, Satipatthana practice, and abiding in Samadhi. Notice the phrase, realizes with the body which seems to refer to silent cognition. Nonetheless, discovery falls short of arrival. The final arrival at truth lies in the pursuit, development, and cultivation of those same things. In this way, there is the final arrival at truth. Even as proficiency guides comprehension, comprehension teaches proficiency just as driving a car depends on but also further improves one's skill as a driver. This is the pursuit, development, and cultivation of proficiency comprehension that serve to fix in memory the isolated gains in knowledge and vision. Samadhi here facilitates internalization of the Dhamma and makes the Dhamma transformative. Discovery is driven by pursuit through application of proficiency and comprehension, yet at the same time the insights and discoveries of comprehension feed back to develop proficiency further. 
Then our practice is cultivated relentlessly to internalize them. This is the general basis of skill acquisition. Without learning in this way, we could not progress in our spiritual development nor in our ability to drive a car. We would begin each practice opportunity anew, having forgotten the previous connections we've made and our previous insights. By learning this way, our proficiency grows and migrates from discursive know-that to know-how integrated into the sensory motor body. A single insight is momentary and, though remarkable, is only a glimpse of what the Buddha saw routinely. Through repetition, what we at first only glimpse becomes integrated as a matter of spontaneous perception, and we begin to see as if through the eyes of the Buddha. The internalized content of proficiency weaves it into the very structure of perception. This pursuit, development, and cultivation of proficiency and comprehension is reflected in the standard descriptions of the third and fourth jhanas given earlier, here abbreviated. Third jhana, he abides in equanimity, proficient and comprehending. He has a pleasant abiding who is equanimous and proficient. We entered samadhi on the basis of proficiency and comprehension. The reappearance of proficiency here either serves as a reminder that we are still engaged in the primary skillful practice, or it indicates some significant further development of proficiency itself in higher stages of samadhi. Fourth jhana, purity of proficiency due to equanimity. Purity of proficiency speaks of the further development of proficiency as a higher attainment rather than as an application of existing proficiency, presumably as the integration of what comprehension has been discovered into virtuosity. The destruction of the taints. The taints, asawa, are sensuality becoming an ignorance, the fundamental misguided tendencies of the mind. The destruction of the taints is a common reference to final liberation. Progress toward awakening is progress in the development of proficiency in the practice of Dhamma. Liberation is the perfection of this proficiency, effectively virtuosity in the skill of life. It is in the silence of samadhi that the taints are destroyed. Conclusions. Samadhi arises naturally as proficiency attentiveness is optimized in practice. Right samadhi springs forth from right proficiency in the practice of dhamma. This account is motivated in terms of coherence and light of early Buddhist texts, in terms of its cognitive and psychological viability, and I dare say in terms of meditative experience. This accounts for the distinctive features attested in the early texts as the conditions under which it arises of itself 
as the stages through which it unfolds, and as the fruits it produces for practice and for the goals of practice. I have attempted here to develop an understanding of the natural basis of samadhi as a functional aspect of human cognition involved in the development and application of virtuosity. The refinement of this natural basis in Buddhist practice and functions of samadhi in developing dhammic skills and producing dhammic insights that ultimately lead to liberation. There's a lot of controversy in modern understanding of samadhi, but attending respectfully to the various viewpoints is how we individually and collectively revisit and refine our right view. The naturalistic and functional viewpoint presented here presents a number of points of contrast with other viewpoints. I hope two points in particular will be given due consideration. First is the natural and spontaneous arising of samadhi, largely without a specific technique, in the presence of attentive proficiency. The second is the insistence on modes of silent but ongoing cognition that must be supported in samadhi if the fruits described here are to be realized. I'm currently focusing a lot of attention on the literature of effortless attention, optimal experience, slow and fast thinking, blink and think, system one and system two, wu-wei, and so on, to better understand the importance of discursive versus silent modes in samadhi and what implications this might have for understanding samadhi itself. This ends our four-part series on the miracle of samadhi. Next week, I'll begin to lead a backroads tour of the Satipatthana Sutta, also in four parts. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org slash chintita, that is s-i-t-a-g-u dot org, c-i-n-t-i-t-a.